Hi. We're going to be talking about violence and sexual violence in this series. There's also some strong language. Please take care while listening. Welcome back to the official companion podcast of HBO's All Be Gone in the Dark. I'm your host, Nancy Miller. This week, the documentary series takes a more personal turn into Michelle's life and her own struggles with an incident of sexual assault from her past. And it ends with a 911 call after Patton discovers Michelle unresponsive in their bed. This episode was really hard for me to watch because it's a reminder that sexual assault isn't always a stranger in the window. It can be, and often is, someone familiar, like in Michelle's case. I cannot help but think that her experience with her boss in Northern Ireland after college is not only critical to understanding why Michelle was so driven to find the Golden State Killer, but also why she had such empathy for the survivors. She knew from her own experience that most of us carry around a lot more private pain than we show to the world. Few writers know more about exploring the complicated inner lives and hidden pain, particularly of women, than this week's first guest, Gillian Flynn. Gillian is the best-selling author of Gone Girl and Sharp Objects, and she was also a big admirer of Michelle, so big that she wrote the foreword to All Be Gone in the Dark. After we talk to Gillian, we'll dive into another part of this series that stood out to me, the evolution of DNA as a crime-solving tool. I'll be joined by retired investigator Paul Holes to talk about what it was like for him to spend decades trying to solve the Golden State Killer case and how DNA was the crucial tool that cracked the case wide open. But first things first, here's my conversation with Gillian Flynn. I'm here with bestselling author Gillian Flynn, who is also my former co-worker. And pal. From back in the day. And pal. I remember back in 2013, yeah. I sent you a link to the story of the Golden State Killer that was written by Michelle McNamara. And your response, which I was really happy to see, was something along the lines of, fuckity fuck fuck, holy fuck, <laughs> this is really fucking insane. And, and you were really celebratory of Michelle's work, which certainly meant a lot. It also reminded me that you were familiar with True Crime Diary before I was even. Mm-hmm. So let's travel back in time And tell me how you first discovered Michelle's blog, True Crime Diary. I mean, it's interesting because I was not someone who would necessarily Google true crime podcasts or true crime documentary or true crime anything. But I came across it and I just remember starting to read it and her voice was so present. She understood those stakes that were involved with true crime, which is basically that when you engage in true crime or reading it, writing it, whatever it is, you are a consumer of other people's tragedy. There's no getting around it. And so I've always had this strange relationship with true crime because of that. And I feel that she brought a real heft to true crime True crime is something that could use more of that, frankly. I mean, it it certainly has it, but I feel often there's an interesting aspect to true crime that I do find is anecdotally true, which is that there's this, why would you read 
that stuff? Why would you read anything like that? And I will say that most of the time in my most of the time in my experience it usually comes from men mm-hmm. and i say that because men don't deal with the consistent pressure that women have of knowing it is entirely possible that someone may see me today and take me from this earth mm-hmm. that is a fact that women deal with every single day of their lives as soon as they become aware of it and hopefully you manage that well and and weigh the risks well but to me it's like why wouldn't women be interested in true crime. Of course we're trying to make sense of that. Of course we're trying to make sense of these bad things happening and men doing bad things to women. That's part of our narrative. I mean, God help us. The culture of predation that you learn by the age of 12. Yes, yes. And that's when we sort of develop growing interest in true crime is probably when we have the awareness Mm -hmm. that we are somehow objects of that predation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That definitely makes sense. In the foreword you wrote for Michelle's book, I was surprised to learn that you felt outmatched by Michelle. And I'm so curious about that because by 2006, you'd published Sharp Objects. You'd had a series of successful books. What is it about Michelle that made you feel outmatched enough that you were nervous to meet her? Yeah. And in fact, never met her. I never met her. I was nervous about it because I did feel that she was without parallel as far as just that idea of how hard it is to do true crime correctly. And I get to make up my facts. I get to make up my stories and my characters. You know, I don't have to knock on someone's door and try to explain myself and explain why you should talk to me about Mm -hmm. this horrible thing that happened. I don't have to, you know, convince cops to share information with me. I don't, you know, I don't have to do any of that stuff. So the fact that she was able to do that all that work so gracefully because you can tell by reading her stuff how insanely well-researched she was. I mean, I started my career in journalism and I thought I was going to be a true crime reporter. I mean, I thought Mm -hmm. I was going to be on the, you know, the city beat and, you know, knocking on people's doors and really getting into stories. And I didn't have the chops for it. I didn't have the chops. I didn't have the guts. I was always just really bowled over by who she was. I definitely recognize the kinship that you guys have, the parallels in your upbringings, the connection to the quality of writing and the amount of energy and effort, even if it's fiction or nonfiction, that it takes to produce great crime writing. In the series, particularly in this episode, we are seeing from Michelle's point of view how her kind of complete immersion and deep dive into the Golden State Killer case is affecting her personal life. Mm. So she notes this in the book, but it's also noted in the series that she wakes up in the middle of the night and swings a lamp at Patton Oswalt, her husband, Mm -hmm. and she can't sleep. She's popping Ambien's and Xanax. And I wonder if there's anything about the immersion in this material that you've had to process in order to still be a really strong writer, but be able to metabolize people's tragedies in a way that she had to metabolize, along with a book deadline. Yeah, you know? right, right. You know, I had the luxury of, at the end of the day, saying, these people aren't real. Where she was living with someone that, I was, I was about to say, that for all she knew was still out there, that, as yeah. we know, was still out there. Mm-hmm. And that's a very different sort of immersion. And she was 
haunting this person, which is also a very different thing. I mean, she, you know, she didn't know if there were eyes on her house, if there was someone who saw the various online researches she was doing. I mean, there's a vast amount of unknowability there. And I think that that is a whole nother level of dread. And that's a lot to take on when it's in real life. You say something really interesting in the foreword that I think is also essential for anyone who's listening to understanding the series. It's that you don't actually care all that much about the Golden State Killer. Yeah. You want him to be captured at the time. You know, he's captured now. But you're not really interested in the why that his mother never hugged him. Right. He's almost like a MacGuffin, yeah. kind of. You know, this thing that, that sort of unifies everybody in this chase. But you are interested in hunting the hunter. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what is it about Michelle still, and I think this is for anyone who's watching the series, who's bought the books, for millions of people who have found her story, what makes her so intriguing still as someone that you kind of want to follow and know more about? A lot of it is that combination that is so rare of having this attention to detail, this grittiness, I mean, absolute grit, to do what she did. She broke this case. I mean, she was out doing beyond police work, I, I, just doing all these different jobs, but at the same time, able to treat it with a real grace and kindness, a real humanity, an understanding of every single person that she wrote about. You felt like you knew the place. I didn't grow up in California in the 70s, and, and the mm -hmm. people are, are so well-described that they, you know, you you feel for them and worry for them. So it's this insane combination that, I mean, truly is very rare of being able to make you emotionally involved, but also intellectually involved. Gillian, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on, and thank you for doing this. And now, my conversation with Paul Holes. I'm here with Paul Holes, a retired cold case investigator and co-host of Jensen and Holes, The Murder Squad. And it is so great to have you and have a chance to talk to you about the complexities of the Golden State Killer case. So you have been involved with, to some degree, the case and the person that we would come to know as the Golden State Killer since the 90s? 1994. So it's been over a quarter century. I was Michelle McNamara's editor at Los Angeles Magazine. And I have an email where Michelle says, I've reached out to and met Paul Holes. This is the first mention that's in September 2012. And Larry Poole, who was the investigator in Southern California on the original Night Stalker case, led her in your direction. Where were you on the case at this time? Did this come in like, like a creaky, rusty door that you opened, or was it something that was top of mind? I distinctly remember. I had communicated with her via work email up to this point, and then I was like, hmm. So I gave her my personal email, and I remember calling her up, stepping out into my backyard, and saying, okay, I'm willing to divulge. It's all off the record, but I will tell you what I'm doing because I'm very excited about where I'm at in my investigation. Uh, it can't show up in the article. And she said, okay. So I let her know where I was at in my investigation, down to who I was actually digging into, the name of the person, why I thought this person could potentially be the Golden State Killer, or at the time, the East Area Rapist. 
And then her article was about to be published and the magazine was going to come out. I was nervous. I was like, oh, what is she going to put in there? Because my fear was, is that some of the stuff I told her in confidence would show up in the article. The article came out. I read it. I probably had beads of sweat you know, running down my forehead thinking, oh, no, you know, my boss is going to be calling me in. You know, I'm going to get in trouble. Because you feared you said too much? Exactly. You know, and that's always a fear. It's always that fine line as to what can I tell for the public to hear about that is appropriate and won't compromise the investigation. So I read the article and nothing I told her off the record showed up in the article. Paul, I didn't know a damn thing about anything you're talking about. <laughs> she held her mud, you know, and that's where the trust all of a sudden became real. Michelle and I just started talking and working together a little bit. It was refreshing for me because for the very first time in basically two decades of my involvement in this case, I kind of had an investigative partner. That's so interesting. I mean, I'd heard of you, but didn't know much about your relationship. Where things pick up for me is when Michelle McNamara pitches me the East Area Rapist original Night Stalker case, mm -hmm. the serial killer that none of us had really ever heard of, and the unifying element that Michelle opted to introduce into the article is a new name. Yes. I am so curious. What was your impression when Michelle told you the new name, Golden State Killer. <laughs> I actually hated it. For my entire <laughs> involvement in the case, I knew this offender as East Area Rapist, or EAR for short, E-A-R, right? Mm -hmm. And that's how everybody in Northern California knew him. And then when he was linked to the homicides down south who were committed by the original Night Stalker, then the original Night Stalker, or ONS, got tagged on. And then people started referring to this offender as ear ons, which I didn't like. I mean, he was always the ear to me. And then some audacious journalist comes along and decides to rename it, which is pretty bold, the Golden State Killer. What did you not like about that name? Was it because it was like, oh, here's another name? Or was there something inherently perturbing about the name Golden State? It really was. Here's another name. I even argued with Michelle after the Los Angeles Magazine article came out. You know, we, we were friendly, but I was saying, oh, come on. I was really resistant, but Michelle proved me wrong. Yeah, it's interesting because the name was a big part of this piece. We actually had a complete draft where we had named him the cul-de-sac killer. And then I think we had the West Coast Ghost. We entertained the I-5 killer, but that was taken because apparently there's another killer named the I-5 killer. Several of them, actually, yeah. So I want you to feel like, by default, we ultimately landed in a good place with Golden State Killer. You know, it conveys the magnitude of what this particular offender did during his reign of terror. Something that I want to talk more about, we know in the end that he's caught via DNA. But what's compelling to me is this particular predator has gone through generations of criminal technology mm -hmm. and ways of finding out who he was. What would have been the methods of identification back in the 70s? The MO 
of the East Area Rapist was distinctive. And that's really how they started to link cases together. In the early cases, he was experimenting. He was trying out different things in terms of, you know, how he's getting into houses, the types of self-preservation mechanisms he was employing, as well as, you know, what he was doing during the sexual assault. But he does, after so many cases, kind of what I would say, settle into a groove. And for the most part, he is doing the same unique things over and over again. The use of dishes on the men's back as an alarm yeah. system. Yeah. He's the only offender to this day that I've ever run across that has done that. So when you look back on the tools that detectives and law enforcement had back in the 70s, which is, you know, asking a survivor to do a sketch and the sketches are of someone in a mask. Yes. When you look back, is it like they never stood a chance in counting this guy? Or is it it could have happened, it's just he was particularly elusive or it was a time in history where it's just law enforcement process wasn't there? The original investigators, when you take a look at not only the amount of work, because they were catching these cases as they were happening, and these cases were coming in fast and furious at times. You know, sometimes this guy would attack five times in a week. Mm -hmm. So they are just getting overrun from just call outs and everything else. But on top of the amount of work that they were doing, the proactive law enforcement aspects were kicking in. Now they are staging patrol cars where they're thinking this guy's going to attack next. They have helicopters up in the air. There's many aspects that they did in response to this offender that were progressive and innovative at the time. And these original investigators, Carol Daly, Dick Shelby, Larry Crompton, they did an amazing job, but they were running into a very sophisticated and intelligent offender in hindsight, advanced training to know how to be able to circumvent everything that they were doing. And that's what he did. And the Golden State Killer, in part, was able to elude law enforcement for the entirety of his known career because of his skill sets. Right, because he was law enforcement. He was a cop. Yeah. But there was a level of luck involved. There was times when he possibly could have been caught, mm -hmm. but for one reason or another, things just worked in his favor and he was able to sneak away. Okay, so let's get to the DNA. When we are talking about what kind of DNA you are getting from a sexual assault kit, mm -hmm. what does that look like? Because I think we just think DNA, DNA, we've, I see a cotton swab, I'm seeing it in its case. I have to admit, I don't really know what that means. So when I'm getting them in, you know, the 94 to 1997 time frame, they had already been examined by forensic scientists. Mm -hmm. And so some of these swabs had already been cut. Typically, half or more than half of that Q-tip was gone when I got it. I was basically looking at a stick with, you know, some tufts of cotton on it. Wow. I was fortunate that they didn't consume the entire swab because now I'd be looking at a stick and I'd be going, well, hopefully some of that swab kind of rubbed on the inside of the container. I'm going to swab the inside of the container and hope there's something there or cut out parts of the manila envelope that the swab could have touched. Uh -huh. You know, so anytime there's a limited sample, 
It's an honest assessment of what can the current state technology provide us versus what can future technology do. And it's really walking a delicate line, especially pre-modern, modern DNA technology. Before DNA, if I'm taking a look at a blood stain, I'd be looking at it going, okay, I could consume this and get the person's ABO blood type, but is that going to really narrow the suspect pool or should I sit on it? And so that's what we did over the decades is we were constantly assessing, is it appropriate to do this now? If we rush it and it doesn't work out, we potentially have killed the case and the guy will never be prosecuted. And oftentimes, particularly cold cases, the DNA is degraded to a point where all you get is a partial profile. And if it's too partial, the FBI will not allow you to search the database. So now your only hope is, is that by developing suspects investigatively, doing a direct one-to-one comparison with that suspect, you find somebody who matches that partial profile. So there's this database of DNA from known offenders called CODIS. Were you able to use that in the Golden State Killer case? The thing about the Golden State Killer case is I knew I had offender DNA. It was just a matter of finding the right guy. He wasn't in CODIS, and he had been searched in CODIS since 2001. He had been searched internationally with no hits. But it just took the right guy being put up into CODIS or one of the investigators finding the right suspect who happened to match, and the case was solved. So that is the one thing about this case that worked in our favor, is for everything that the Golden State Killer did to prevent revealing his identity, he left his DNA, and he left his DNA everywhere. He didn't predict the future, and that's what ultimately was his downfall. The story with Michelle, at least the story that appeared in the magazine, got greenlit because of the cufflinks. I'm intrigued by, even if they were dead ends in the end, the cufflinks, or uh, for a time we had a map that maybe he was a construction worker. We had all these little puzzle pieces that were shaken and thrown all over. How did her work finding some of these things influence your investigation? Michelle was coming in with a set of fresh eyes. At this point, I was already two decades into this case. As she's learning about aspects of the case, she's asking questions. Many of these things that she's asking me, I had kind of tucked away and and wasn't even considering. And so it Mm kind of had to bring those details back to me. And I had to reassess them as Michelle and I were communicating about them. And, And I think one of the most notable things was this badge in the very first Concord attack, where the case file that I had access to didn't have any information about a badge in it that had been found during the crime scene investigation in a front lawn. Michelle asked me about this badge. And I was like, what badge? What are you talking about? And then she sends me a picture of a badge, as well as the supplements that Concord PD had written about finding this badge and how they were trying to identify where this badge could have come from. Uh, Like a police badge? Turns out it was a security guard badge. So I was assessing this going, okay, I obviously don't have a complete copy of the case file. But then the other thing was, it's like, well, my offender, not once in all the cases, did he ever pose as a law enforcement officer or as a security guard. So I ended up going, you know what? I don't think that badge is related. 
But it was one of those things where she's pointing something out that I didn't know about. I kind of dismissed it, and then we kind of go back and forth a little bit about it. But in hindsight, that could turn out to be extraordinarily critical evidence because now we know who the Golden State Killer is. And is it possible that was a badge that he had used and employed in some capacity as he's moving around Northern California? Dude, are you going to follow up on that? Is that just something that you can find out just to decide for yourself? There's so much I want to follow up on. You know, right now, the legal process is moving forward, and we have to see where that uh, ultimately ends. You know, my hope would be is that, whether it be me or other investigators, that all these questions that we don't have answers to, we can sit down and get the answers. Mm -hmm. But right now, it's all a mystery. Right. So you said a quarter of a century. Things have changed a lot for you in the past 25 years, particularly in the last few years, including your retirement. Yeah. And you are a relatively young guy. Is this like in cop years? It's like dog years where you're seven times older in cop years. Why retire? It's a financial decision. It became obvious that it was in my financial interest mm. to retire when I turned 50. And I just happened to turn 50 March 15th of 2018. So you retired the same year and just one month before the Golden State Killer is caught. Is that correct? Uh, literally, Joe D'Angelo came on our radar right around my birthday. I'm retiring in a matter of a handful of days. So I had four days in order to try to figure out who this guy was. And that's where, after I talked to the police chiefs that fired him, I was like, oh my gosh, this guy is getting very interesting. That's when I drive up and park in front of his house. And then, you know, him and Haw, you know, should I just go get his DNA? Because what's the likelihood this is the Golden State Killer? And then after I think about it, I go, well, you know, he's got this, this, and this that's adding up. But I wasn't convinced by any stretch of the imagination. I've had other suspects that I thought looked better on paper than Joe D'Angelo. And so I drive home, and that was the last thing I did. And I was disappointed that I didn't close this guy out, and I was disappointed that I did not solve this case before I retired. So how did you find out D'Angelo really was the person you had been looking for all this time? Every day, I've got somebody calling me, giving me updates about what's going on. I'm retired, so my wife and I fly out to Colorado to shop for houses. We go out to a restaurant, we're sitting there, and then Lieutenant Kirk Campbell calls me, and he had been giving me some updates over the course of the week, so I didn't think it was anything more than an update. As soon as I open up the phone, he basically is like, Paul, you can't tell anybody anything. And then at, at that point, I knew, okay. When he said, the lab's excited, but there's something, you know, about 21 markers, this and that, I was like, it's the guy. <laughs> yeah, right, you, right, right. This is the guy, you know. And after 24 years, I'm just kind of in this surreal state when I walk back into the restaurant. We had gotten the fortune cookies. My wife was excited because her fortune said something to the effect of, you will have found your dream house. And we had just put an offer literally on the house that I'm sitting in right now. So she's like, <laughs> just besides herself about this whole thing and is wanting to know what my fortune says. You know, and so I go through the motions because I'm still sort of in a state of shock. She could tell that I was off. And so she goes, so what did Kirk want? You know, and, and, and she's a DNA analyst, by the way. So she kind of knows the drill. You know, I just kind of shrug and she says, do they have DNA? And I just kind of do a, a simple nod. 
And then she's looking at me and she just goes, no. Uh-huh. So your wife gets a fortune cookie that says you were going to find a house. You get a fortune cookie where the fortune probably read something like you'll meet a dark and mysterious stranger. <laughs> no, I don't I don't think it was anything like that. It was it was probably something <laughs> like these are the six numbers you should choose for a lottery. <laughs> well, this is better than winning the lottery. <laughs> All right, I've got one last question for you. Another way that your life has changed is that you've become something of a celebrity. You've got a podcast, you're on TV. So what's that been like, knowing that you've been kind of in this, like, DNA forensic locker for a long time, and then you emerge, and you've got this huge fan base? Yeah, you know, it's been such a surreal experience, because literally right after D'Angelo was taken into custody, I go to this crime conference, CrimeCon in Nashville. You know, I'd never heard of such a thing, and I had no idea what I was walking into. Here I am, just a county employee, a retired county employee, and I've got people recognizing who I am. You know, it was just kind of a weird experience. And from that point on, you know, my life just took a completely different turn. Then I get involved with the Oxygen Network doing shows for them, as well as a podcast. And I'm just now getting to the point where I am proactively going out and looking at other cases, pursuing my passion that I've always done. Are there cases out there that I can make an impact on? But also, are there cases out there whose story needs to be told? And I'm now in a position to be able to do that, to bring attention to other cases, and also to highlight the good work that so many other investigators are doing that often they get forgotten about. As you're talking, it's reminding me so much of Michelle McNamara's mission. In hindsight, as you're looking at this new space and this true crime ecosystem, is there anything that you learned from Michelle or any influence that she had on you in the way that you explore your process in this new stage of life? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I saw with Michelle, of course, I had a relationship with her, but other investigators had relationships with her. Mm -hmm. You know, Ken Clark, Erica Hutchcraft. You know, she was able to gain the trust of people from all walks of life, you know. So I think part of it is her approach. It was her personality, her approach, and being able to do that because us out of the law enforcement sphere can be tough nuts to crack, and Mm -hmm. she figured a way to do that. You know, and I I miss her. You know, in fact, I went to her memorial service, got to meet her family, Mm -hmm. got to meet other friends of hers, and the people that were showing up at her memorial, the circle she was in, how down to earth she was. You know, it really just underscored what a genuine person she was. Could not agree with you more, Paul. Thank you so much for speaking with me. No, it's my pleasure, Nancy. That's it for this episode. Thanks again to Gillian Flynn and Paul Holes for joining us. And thanks to everyone listening at home. We'll be back next week to talk more about Michelle McNamara's legacy with Patton Oswalt and Paul Haynes. You can listen to that episode right after the fifth installment of All Be Gone in the Dark, which premieres next Sunday, July 26th at 10 p.m. Eastern on HBO. I'm Nancy Miller. This podcast was produced by HBO in conjunction with Pineapple Street Studios. Our team at Pineapple Street Studios includes executive producers Jenna Weiss-Berman, Max Linsky, and Barry Finkel. Our managing producer is Gabrielle Lewis. This episode's lead producer is Emmanuel Hapsis. Our associate producer is Janelle Anderson. Our researcher is Melissa Slaughter. And our editors are Maddie Sprunkheiser and Joel Lovell. Our engineer is Noriko Okabe. 
Original music by Andrew Epen of Basement Crafts. And special thanks to Liz Garbus, Elizabeth Wolf, and Kate Berry, and everyone else at Story Syndicate. This podcast couldn't exist without you. If you like the show and you have a minute, you can review and rate this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you might get your podcasts. It really helps people find the show. You can also stream it on HBO and HBO Max. Until next week. If you or someone you know has been sexually assaulted, you can get help by calling the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, or RAIN. You can call their 24-hour hotline at 800-656-HOPE-HOPE, or visit hbo.com slash gone for more resources.